Welcome to Noise Cutter. All right, and welcome to this episode of the Noise Cutter podcast. I'm your host, Rex Chatterjee, and this episode is a readout of a newsletter issue that we published on January 21st, 2024. The full text of it, including all of the links and the images that are associated with this episode, will be available at noisecutter.substack.com um, and you can look in the episode description for this podcast episode for a link to the exact issue that we will be reading out today. And this one's called Houthis, Chinese Walls, and Exploding Birds. Now keep in mind this was written and published in January 24. It's now March 3rd and so some things especially with the Houthi story uh, might have changed a little bit. Okay so here we go. Houthis, we've got a problem. Back in October of last year, I wrote a long-form piece on the Hamas attack on Israel, and in it, I wondered whether the conflict would expand beyond Gaza, and if so, where and how. At the time, my best guess was across Israel's northern border and into southern Lebanon, the home turf of the Iran-backed Hezbollah. I didn't set any sort of time frame for when this would happen. Um... Though now, you know, roughly 100 days later, the time seems to be drawing a bit nearer. Um, But one thing I'll own up to not having foreseen at all is the current conflict in the Red Sea. And there's a number of reasons of why it really doesn't make sense to me, and I'll list some of them out here as a series of observations. So first of all, Yemen is complicated. And sure, all of the Middle East is complicated, but Yemen's recent political history takes that level of complication to a whole nother level. If you're hesitant about believing me, um, you know, just have a look. And there's a chart here in the show notes in the actual uh, newsletter issue of the charts of the main. uh, It's a chart, sorry, of the main belligerents in Yemen's ongoing civil war. And it's an ongoing civil war. Um, Normally, if you look at Wikipedia for any like global conflict or like war um, article, you'll see a list of main belligerents. and you know, typically it's like two columns, right? Um, In this case, it's actually three columns. And it's huge compared to a lot of, you know, recent, I'd say, what, the last hundred years, um, sort of conflicts. Um, You've got three axes, right? So you've got the Houthis on one side, you've got the internationally recognized Republic of Yemen in the middle. And then on the right side, you've even got Al Qaeda, and, uh, you know, its allies. Um, And then the Islamic State below that, right? So to say that the Middle East is complicated, yeah, Yemen just more so. But okay, point number two. The Yemeni civil war has given rise to an incredibly dire humanitarian situation within the country. Now, in order to facilitate aid in February of 2021, the U.S. State Department lifted the designations of the Houthis, and mind you, the Houthis control a significant portion of the territory of Yemen, Um, it lifted their designation as what's called an FTO, or a foreign terrorist organization. And it also lifted it as an SDGT, or a specially designated global terrorist. So why, right? The objective was to enable global aid organizations to deliver relief um, to the people living under Houthi control, without fear 
on the part of those organizations of violating U.S. law, right, against providing assistance to FTOs. So, you know, I wondered to myself at the time, right, like, is it really necessary to lift the SDGT designation to effectuate that? Um, and there's a clarifying note here. And for wonks and those very specifically in this discipline, I'm sorry, I'm going to be oversimplifying a little bit. Um, now, you might have heard the, you know, saying that providing aid to a terrorist is a crime under U.S. law. And that's true for FTO designated terrorists. Providing them with material support is a crime, right? The SDGT designation doesn't actually bar that sort of conduct, right? What that does is it allows the U.S. Treasury Department to take action to disrupt the terrorists' finances and their interaction with or access to the global financial, global banking system, right? So was it really necessary to lift the SDGT designation to allow folks like, you know, Oxfam and the UN and so on to go and deliver like food and clothing and shelter materials, et cetera, to um, the folks living in the Houthi part of, of Yemen? And I'm assuming there would be the Houthis, you know, distributing that aid. Um, sure, you can't do that with an FTO, um, but do they do they need to claw back the SDGT is what I'm, you know, the designation is what I'm wondering. But in either case, they, they took both off. So following their attacks on commercial vessels transiting the Red Sea and their subsequent attacks on U.S. Navy ships patrolling the area, the Houthis have been redesignated as SDGT, right? Um, they're not as FTO. So they they were both, and then they weren't either. And now they're back to being an SDGT, but they're still not an FTO. Now, the Biden administration might change their tune on the FTO designation at any time. But, you know, in many ways, what I'm saying here is that the SDGT kind of hopscotch, are you, are you not, you know, I guess it's hokey pokey, right? SDGT designation in then take it out and put it in again is really just evidence of a failed effort to bring the Houthis to the diplomatic table. And with Iran really pulling the strings behind the Houthis, it's not really immediately clear why anyone thought the carrot approach here would have worked, you know, back in 2021. But okay. So point four. For Iran, Yemen represents the perfect trap. Given the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza as a result of Israel's operations in response to October 7th, the U.S. has very little appetite to be accused of worsening the humanitarian crisis in Yemen by redesignating the Houthis as an FTO, right? Which is my guess as to why they haven't been. Um, so the U.S. is forced to confront the Houthi threat without the benefit of one of its strongest anti-terrorist weapons, economic resource denial. Sure, you've got the SDGT back on, but the FTO is is, is not. Um and point five, right? I've wondered from time to time why groups like the Houthis agree to be Iran's proxies and, you know, in this case, missile fodder in Iran's sort of Cold War or proxy war against America, Israel, and the West generally. You know, much like the original Cold War, I think it's fair to chalk up most of it to ideology. Um, and for the Houthis, right, a hatred of the United States and of Israel has been really a day one tenet of, of the entire group. Um, so... Point six, Iranian support of a disruption of commercial shipping traffic in the Red Sea strikes me as sort of kind of nuts, right? And this also doesn't really make sense. By now, I think everyone understands how vitally important the Red Sea transit is, right, um, leading up to the Suez Canal and into the Mediterranean um, for international trade. 
we've seen images of huge container ships making the transit full of goods, you know, typically from Asia, uh, off to be sold in Europe and the EMEA region, you know, more broadly. And of course, who's the single biggest manufacturer of goods in Asia, right? This isn't really a pop quiz. It's China, obviously. The very same China that also happens to be the single biggest purchaser of Iranian oil. Now, I'm no customer service expert, right? But putting a top client's commercial interests at risk maybe isn't the best way to do business. And Chinese manufacturing firms and shipping firms have already started to feel the sting of drastically more expensive and delayed shipping to Europe. Given the recent reports um, we've seen of cooling in the Chinese manufacturing sector, I can't imagine the Red Sea crisis is welcome news in Beijing. I'd imagine that this sentiment will be soon communicated, probably by, you know, we're talking about January, January when I wrote this and now it's March. So I'm assuming it's already happened, you know, to Tehran, right? If it hasn't been already. Excuse the water break. Now, counterintuitive as it might be, the Red Sea crisis is actually added to the valuations of global shipping companies responsible for transiting goods through the region. Now, that doesn't seem right, but yet it is. Let's do some microeconomics. If there's a crisis in the Red Sea uh, where vessels keep getting attacked, insurance costs for vessels transiting the Red Sea skyrocket, and shipping companies decide it's more economical to avoid the Red Sea, and thus also avoid the skyrocketed insurance costs, right? Because you insure per the route. And they do this by taking the long way to Europe around the Cape of Good Hope, so around South Africa, around the bottom of Africa. And this new route keeps ships occupied for longer, which therefore decreases their availability. So the supply of seafaring, seafaring shipping, say that eight times fast, the supply of seafaring shipping from Asia to Europe, the availability of that has gone down. So decreased supply means increased price, and the valuations of shipping companies therefore rise. So to recap, in this little scenario, decreased efficiency leads to increased enterprise value. So my question here is, did the Houthis just turn shipping companies into law firms? Don't answer that question. And that's all I've got for now. You know, I have a few things I could say about the military conflict, but they've already been said by loads of other people by now. This will be ongoing, low intensity, and indulgent of Iran's sort of fig leaf that it's not truly the one behind the entire mess currently engulfing the entire Middle East. Well, sort of. If you want more on the subject, I'd start with this analysis, and I'll link it um, by the Atlantic Council of the conflict in the Red Sea. So... On to the next story, Good Wall Hunting, a Carta story. So not everyone here knows what Carta is, so, you know, indulge me for a moment, if you already know, you know, while I explain. So when you have a startup or any private company, really, uh, you need to have what's called a capitalization or cap table. A cap table is a list of all of the owners of equity in the company, typically divided up by equity class, ranked by ownership stake, etc. As these companies grow and they undergo financing events, et cetera, these tables can become a little bit more complicated. And, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a piece of web-based software that could help companies manage these tables, issue stock certificate, and all that jazz? Of course, it would be an enter Carta. And it was good. But eventually, Carta wanted to be something else, too. It wanted to help facilitate trading in private company stock because trading stuff makes money. 
more to the point, it likely it likely makes a heck of a lot more money than what amounts to a fancy spreadsheet app, which, if you recall, is Carta's main line of business. And startup insiders want to sell their socks sell their stock sometimes. I just wrote tongue twister after tongue twister in this one. And startup insiders want to sell their stock sometimes. So this is great for them too. It's just a great big win, you know, all around, right? Not so fast. To really get into the problem here, we need to explore a problematically named common term used within the financial services industry. And this term is, of course, the Chinese wall. Named after the Great Wall of China or those interior silkscreen walls found in Chinese historical design, depending on who you ask, a Chinese wall in the finance context amounts to an information barrier between different units of a financial services business in order to prevent conflicts of interest, right? And that's the whole point of a Chinese wall. You know, different people in the same kind of company can have different interests with respect to having access to information and what they do with it. And so the wall divides information from one source from getting into people with access to other sources and having different motivations. Okay. We could call it an ethics wall, right? To get away from the problematic naming. In the most common financial services context, the wall divides information access between investment banking and sales and trading businesses between uh, units within a large bank, right? The investment banking unit might have in its possession certain confidential and proprietary information about a company for the purpose of, excuse me, conducting, say, a debt offering for the company. Now, traders on this, you know, suppose a bank's fixed income desk, whose clients might be large hedge funds trading in the company's debt, would love to have a peek at that information for the purpose of informing their selling and trading activities, right? But it would be unethical and wrong for edge fund to have access through its um, broker, through its trader, to access um, information that the bank that houses both the trader and the banker has because the banker got it from the company because they're doing a debt issuance deal on this side, right? There has to be a wall in the middle. Okay. And under Title V of Sarbox, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, yeah, um, crossing the ethics wall, the Chinese wall, is illegal. Okay. But what if we're not talking about an investment banking unit and a sales and trading unit in a large bank, but rather a fancy spreadsheet unit and a sales and trading unit? You know, what then? So things blew up for Carta around a week and a half ago. Mind you, this is in January. So at this point, it's a couple of months ago. Uh, when a plucky employee on the equity sales side of Carta contacted an investor, contacted an investor of a company called Linear, using Carta's cap table management services to like so Linear was on this side of the fence, right? And they were using Carta for the cap table management services. And so somebody on this side, the equity sales side, um, calls an investor of Linear, right? How would they know they're investor of Linear? It's a private company, but okay. To inform them that Carta had a buyer for that person's shares, should they be willing to sell. So how did that employee know that the investor was a holder of shares in Linear? And of course, by a quick peek over Carta's apparently porous or non-existent Chinese wall, of course. Linear CEO caught wind of this and publicly disclosed the issue on, of course, Twitter, uh, postulating the ethics breach and all hell 
in my opinion, very rightfully broke loose. Less than a week later, Carta announced that it would be shutting down its stock sale business. And man, was the intervening week full of wild internet behavior. The whole thread that I've linked um, you know, in the show notes here really encapsulates the dialogue between the CEOs of Linear and Carta, serving as a sort of what not to do uh, in corporate communications, from Carta's end specifically. But this also isn't the only recent mess that Carta's been in. Got that linked. Check it out. And I wonder if the firm's rickety ethical walls won't be the undoing of the entire Carta house, right? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Okay. And so that concludes the two main articles for this issue. And I'm going to stop here for this episode of the Noise Cutter podcast. The Noise Cutter newsletter issue for this episode is available at noisecutter.substack.com. And in it, I've got a few quick hits um, that I'm not going to cover here, but you can read them there. Uh, they involve China cracking Apple's airdrop, airdrop encryption, um, a lawsuit between India and Apple. Well, really not a lawsuit, a, a conflict could wind up being a lawsuit. Um, New York moving to ban non-compete agreements. Interesting stuff there. And uh, something about an exploding bird. It's not a literal bird. It's bird scooters. Anyway, this has been an episode of the Noise Cutter podcast. Check us out, noisecutter.substack.com, noisecutter.com. You can subscribe to the podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is going to be up on YouTube. You can subscribe there too. And, you know, until next time, I will see you all later. The Noise Cutter Podcast is a production of Titan Gray, LLC, and is hosted by me, Rex Chatterjee. If you found our podcast helpful and want to say thanks, please head over to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever else, and give us a review, leave a comment, and hit that follow or subscribe button to stay up to date on the latest. For more about our guests or this episode, head over to our website, noisecutterpodcast.com where you'll find contact info for our guests, as well as links to some of the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to reach us directly, just send an email to info at noisecutterpodcast.com. This recording is a copyright of Titan Gray LLC with all rights reserved. This podcast may be construed as attorney advertising, and prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice, and your listening to this podcast or contacting us about it does not form an attorney-client relationship. No affiliation or relationship, including an attorney-client relationship, exists between us and our guests unless otherwise stated. For full terms of use, please visit our website at noisecutterpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, here at Noisecutter.